Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the topic of entheogens and God. My guest is Don Latin, who has been exploring this world for many, many years as the former religion reporter for the San Francisco and Chronicle. He is author of many books, including the Harvard Psychedelic Club, Distilled Spirits, Jesus Freaks, Following Our Bliss, Shopping for Faith, Changing Our Minds, Running from Religion, and most recently, God on Psychedelics, Tripping Across the Rubble of Old-Time Religion. Don is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be back and speaking with you again, too. I'm very impressed, I have to say, with your new book, because what it showed me is that we are in a new era now. I first took uh, psychedelics in 1969, as I recall, um, probably roughly the same time that, that you did. But it, it seems as if Everything is different today, and you've captured that in your book, because for, for one thing, the legal environment has changed. And, and along with the changing legal environment, you have mainstream institutions and research and psychotherapy, and in particular, your focus of religion, are beginning to say, you know, we, we can do something with this, these entheogens, these psychedelics or hallucinogens, whatever you want to call them, we can do it legally. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole new scene right now. The legal situation is changing very rapidly. Uh, you know, my last book, Changing Our Minds, uh, I was writing a lot about the clinical trials that are going on, you know, to have the uh, Food and Drug Administration reclassify these medicines for ther so therapists could use them. But in the last few years, so many cities and states have moved to decriminalize uh, certain psychedelics and entheogens. Of course, Oregon was first. They've basically decriminalized all drugs and then legalized and are regulating supervised psilocybin sessions, psilocybin being the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Uh, they're just getting that going now. Colorado passed a law doing a similar reform. Uh, at least 20 cities across the country have directed their local police departments to give uh, enforcement of Drug laws as relate to psychedelics or certain psychedelics, the lowest priority. So in this climate, there's all kinds of interesting things happening. Uh, and one of the things that has, that's happening, which I write about in God on, Psych God on Psychedelics, is that these underground churches that have been operating in some cases for decades are now starting to come above ground and, and be very visible. 
Uh, and meanwhile, you have a small, it's really just beginning an avant-garde of ordained clergy in mainstream churches like the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, Catholic Church, rabbis that are starting to be open to the possibility that entheogens, psychedelics can be used as a source for some people, probably a minority of people, but for some people, a source of spiritual renewal. Uh, so there's a lot going on right now. It's a really fascinating, fascinating time. Basically, we're going from the kind of the we're get we're finally shaking off the old counterculture <laughs> reputation of psychedelics and mainstreaming in all kinds of interesting ways, both in terms of the medical community, the religious community, you, you name it. It's it, it's an it's an exciting time. Well, and you mentioned Oregon, for example, legalizing magic mushrooms, psilocybin in supervised settings, which implies that they're literally creating a whole new profession of people who, who do supervise these settings. Yeah, yeah. It's not just it's not just decriminalizing it. It's it's actually having some kind of a regulatory structure where they will be requiring certain training, uh, certain guarantees of purity of the of the mushrooms and regulating the dose which is very important of course um and it's interesting because they're not calling it therapy because that opens up another can of worms about medical issues they're just calling it they're not calling it spiritual either they're just calling it facilitated sessions <laughs> the the government of oregon has recognized that when it comes to psilocybin, especially for people who have never tried it before, it's good to have somebody with you. Yes, yes. And I think that's, that's, that is wise, especially for, for first-timers, um, even for other people. You know, it depends. Yeah. But it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, a doctor or a trained therapist or anything. It can be a friend, but someone who knows the territory, someone you trust, someone you're comfortable with. There are now courses for people who wish to become supervised trip guides. Yeah, yeah. So there, there was an un, a very large, actually at least two large networks of underground uh, therapy uh, uh, training programs that have been operating for years. I mean, decades in some cases. Um, but what started happening, oh, I don't know, four or five years ago, I think the, one of the first ones was in San Francisco at a place called the California Institute of Integral Studies, which was started way, as you know, way back in the 50s by Alan Watts and some other people. Uh, it's changed quite a bit over the years. But anyway, they have a very popular and successful program where they've been going on for four, I'm probably four or five years at least, training um, psychedelic guides and therapists. Uh, and then they're, they're popping up all over the country now. There's a new program at Berkeley, Center for the Science of Psychedelics. They have a training program, Naropa, all over the country, really. Uh, that it's just exploding. Um, it's unclear exactly what kind of jobs these people are going to find. Uh, it seems like there are more people certified than there are opportunities to legally do this but it's 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 starting and it's starting in, and it's starting in Oregon. You also point out that there are mainstream clergy from mainstream American denominations people who have in some instances been hostile 
towards the use of drugs, certainly never used them before, who are saying to themselves, well, before I criticize this much more, I, I should at least try it and see see what it's really all about. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, some of this is, is uh, arising out of a study that was done at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore and at NYU in Manhattan, where they recruited 24 religious professionals who had never taken psychedelics before. Uh, these could be, you know, priests, uh, rabbis, uh, chaplains, spiritual directors, seminary professors, you know, anyone who's in the religion business, so to speak. And they uh, gave them two supervised sessions of psilocybin, not the actual mushrooms, but the active ingredient, a synthesized version of the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, after careful, you know, screening and preparation, um, medically supervised, totally legal. They had permission to do this uh, to see how it would affect their personal lives and their vocation. How would it change their idea about God or Jesus or the Bible or uh, being, you know, or pastoral care? And uh, now the study hasn't been published yet. Uh, It's taken a, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, It's been delayed several times. But I, as a journalist, I managed to track down four or five people who were participants and interviewed them and got a kind of a range of responses, what happened with them. And two of those uh, uh, individuals, one is a rabbi in California, the other is an Episcopal priest in Georgia, have started organizations. They were so um, uh, inspired by the experience that they had that they've started organizations. One uh, is called Ligare. It's a Christian psychedelic society started by an Episcopal priest named Hunt Priest. It's a great name for a priest, Hunt Priest. Uh, and he's already organizing retreats for other clergy to have them experience uh, a, a mystical uh, experience through psychedelics. They've gone all the way to the Netherlands because it's legal there. But probably the next time they do this, it will be in Oregon. Um uh, so they're starting with clergy. They're, they're, you know, the, and I was impressed that these these uh, ministers and priests, they're not like rushing back to their pulpits and starting to preach that psychedelics are going to save the world. You know, they know that most people aren't ready to hear that yet, probably in their church. So they've been very private and quiet about this for the most part. Um and because also not everyone had a positive experience. We can talk about that a little bit if, if, if you want, the range of experiences that, that, that these folks had. It's very interesting uh, that it's happening at this time right now, that mainstream clergy for the first time are, are saying, you know, within their religious body, there are opportunities for them to, uh, under appropriate circumstances, perfectly legally and with all religious sanctions, take psychedelics. At the same time, church attendance is dropping dramatically. Right, exactly, Jeff. I mean, the subtitle, the title of my book is God on Psychedelics. The subtitle is Tripping Across the Rubble of Old Time Religion, which is a little snarky. I almost did. (laughs) I didn't want to offend anyone, but, you know, anyway, but that's a reference to the fact that, you know, I, I was a religion reporter, religion writer for the San Francisco Chronicle for 
more than 20 years. And every year, Gallup would survey the country and they, you know, about church attendance and affiliation. And it, you know, it would change a little bit, but it, you know, it, it wasn't changing dramatically. About 10 or 15 years ago, it started just tanking, falling off the cliff. And now, uh, you know, for the first time, I think in seven decades of serving, more than half uh, of the people say they don't attend church at all. And it's really, it's really dropping. So uh, I, th- some of the people, some of the clergy that are interested in psychedelic experience, mystical experiences via psych- psychedelics, think this could be a source of renewal and revival for some people in the church. Um, I don't want to overstate it because, you know, most people, most clergy don't even get into the religion business because of a mystical experience. I mean, that's a minority of people. And most people don't go to church for a mystical experience. They go for all kinds of other reasons, for community, for learning how to live an ethical life. You know, there's all kinds of, uh, for to work for social justice, um, you know, fear of death, you know, all kinds of reasons people will, will connect to a church. But, um, but, you know, having the kind of mystical experience that perhaps, you know, Jesus had or, you know, the founders of the faith, uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting process for people, for people to, go, to, go, to go through. I mean, what, one of the, the this uh, Hunt priest who started this Christian psychedelic society, he called his experience a second ordination. Uh, his psilocybin experience, he'd never really had a mystical experience. Uh, his faith was all in his head. It was very intellectual. And when he took the psilocybin, he says he felt the power of the Holy Spirit as an energy in his body. And he clearly, in his mind, that was the Holy Spirit. And he felt a bit like, you know, a Pentecostal preacher, right? Who, you know, you'd hear this kind of talk more from a Pentecostal or charismatic Christian uh, preachers. Um, but, you know, he would say like when he lays hands on people now, you know, in, a, in, the, in the service, he really feels an energetic connection, which he never felt before. So that was a very powerful experience for him. Now, others had, you know, kind of frightening and, and or kind of neutral and negative experiences all across the map. I don't want to say that everyone is having a, you know, a serene, blissful, mystical experience, but, but some are. I suppose it's fair to say, though, everyone who takes psychedelics is going to have some kind of an experience. It's not going to be purely an intellectual exercise like working a crossword puzzle. Yeah, no. But a couple people that I interviewed, they they went into what they described as kind of a void, like a black void of kind of nothingness. Uh, in what one person who, who, who experienced that said it wasn't really frightening. It was just kind of nothing. I mean, it was strange, but it didn't really speak to him in any important way, right? Whereas another woman who's happened to be an Episcopal uh, chaplain at Harvard, working at Harvard, uh, she said it was a very terrifying experience. There was kind of an emptiness to it that kind of frightened her at first. And she didn't see it as part of her Christian tradition or experience until she dug a little deeper and realized that, well, there actually is a tradition of this in Christianity, you know, the whole dark night of the soul of St. John of the Cross. You know, mystical experiences are not always blissful and, you know, rainbows and, you know, wonderfulness. They, they can be difficult. And then they, and you know, as, as we know from people who do psychedelic-assisted therapy, the so-called bad trip 
with a guide can be a, a good trip ultimately because it helps you to process whatever it is in your soul and your psyche that's causing these negative and frightening experiences. Uh, so with a train, it's it's like therapy, right? I mean, you often you dig down just regular therapy. You dig down and bring up some uncomfortable issues with yourself and your past. This happens, you know, like on steroids with psychedelics. So um, there's all kinds of experiences people are having. Do you have a hypothesis as to why in the last 20 years or so church attendance has begun to plummet so much? You know, I think there are a lot of reasons. A lot of it is generational. You know, uh, church attendance, it's lower among younger people. But that's kind of always been the case, or at least in the past 50 years or so. I think a lot of it is that the churches have become so – there's so much division, divisiveness in churches over politics, uh, over, you know, abortion, over gay rights, that the, the churches are battling with each other just like the whole country is battling with each other over these issues, right? With gender identity, you, know, you name it, right? So I think a lot of people have been turned off because of that. Um then, you know, in the Catholic Church, you know, they've had their scandals about uh, sexual abuse of, of minors and the cover up by church leaders. I think the Catholic Church has lost some people around that. Um, I think there are, I think there are lo lots of reasons. And I, in, in the book, I talk to rabbis and cl Christian clergy. And one of the things that they point out is both the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, of course, have a deep of a long tradition of mysticism, right? Mm -hmm. But it hasn't really been taught and it's not talked about in the churches. So people don't know that Christianity has this tradition uh, or Judaism has this tradition. And a lot of the churches have become kind of lifeless and kind of too intellectual or too political. Uh, and I think what so many people are looking for today is not so much they're not so much interested in doctrine or dogma or denominationalism. They're interested in personal spiritual experience, religious experience. And a lot of that, I think, came out of the psychedelic 60s when people, you know, the, our generation, the boomers, right, had those experiences mm -hmm. and got interested in all kinds of things, whether it was, you know, Buddhist meditation, Kabbalah, uh, Christ, Christian mysticism, you know. Um, so I think there's a kind of a broader attempt to return to uh, exploring the mystical traditions in mainstream face. And psychedelics can be a way to show people uh, kind of a window into that. I do think, as I recall, you, you cite a statistic in your book that the fastest growing segment of society right now are people who identify as spiritual but not religious. Right. Sometimes they call them the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, as in none of the above. Mm -hmm. So these are people when they're asked their religion, they'll say they'll say nothing, they'll say, you know, nothing or not affiliated. But most of those people wouldn't call themselves atheists, I don't mm -hmm. think. Um, they still maybe believe in God. Uh, they may be agnostic in some way, but they're open to exploring that realm. And I think what's happening in the so-called spiritual but not religious movement is you have all kinds of other forms arising, the so-called small group movement, you know, rather than big, you know, mega churches and everyone's going and, you know, 
worshiping Jesus on Sunday, you have a lot of small groups like house churches of maybe a dozen people or Bible study groups, meditation groups, men's groups, women's groups, uh, 12-step fellowships. That's a big part of this, too. So that's where a lot of the action is, um, as opposed to in the you know, traditional organized mainline, mainline churches. Uh, and so the churches are seeing this, you know, I mean, years ago, I wrote a story about, you know, the 12-step movement and how, like in San Francisco, for instance, there would be more people in the church basement at the AA meeting on Wednesday night than there'd be worshiping upstairs on Sunday. You know, that, this has been happening for a long time. And, you know, the ministers are saying, well, what's, maybe we can learn something from what's going on in the basement with these, uh, <laughs> this group of drunks hanging down, down there. You know, because a big part of the 12-step movement is uh, a spiritual awakening is seen as one of the components of uh, recovery from alcoholism or drug abuse or whatever the addiction is. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of things going on in that, in that regard. Well, I think it's very interesting that the, the word psychedelic seems to be sort of being phased out. And these days we hear more and more use of the word entheogen, which I, I think it implies, entheogen to me implies that uh, somehow the divine spirit is going to become incorporated within you when you have uh, this drug. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was it was Aldous Huxley, the uh, you know the writer of Brave New World and The Doors of Perception, and uh, a researcher named Humphrey Osmond in Canada who coined the word th together. They coined the word psychedelic, which me in the fifties, mm -hmm. which means mind manifesting. And not that long after that, some people like Houston Smith started using the word entheogen. I mean, it's, it's not a new word. It's, it's become more popular in maybe the last 10 years or so. And that basically is sort of the divine within, contacting the divine within. Uh, I actually still prefer the word psychedelic myself because I think there's less baggage attached to that. Um, you know, it's like when you say entheogen, then as, as, say, as a journalist using it, right? Then you are saying, well, I'm, I think that there really is God. God is present in these experiences, and not, of course, not not everyone believes that or thinks that. Um, but yeah, in the in the movement, especially in the psychedelic churches, you'll hear the word entheogen a, a lot more. I'm not sure if it's going to catch on or not. Uh, maybe in, in 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 our circles it will, and your, among your audience, but. Uh, I, I still think psychedelic is a, is a fine word. And a lot of people say, oh, don't use that word because it has cultural baggage of the 60s and Timothy Leary and the Grateful Dead and the hippies and all that. OK, well, you know, that is part of the tr part of this history. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, they're, they're the entheogen. You hear that a lot more. Well, it, it does carry with it a promise, but it seems to me that there's a real paradox in the idea that you're going to somehow become closer to the God within by taking a you know, physical substance. It, it almost, it, it's reductionistic. And in, in that sense, for me, someone, I, I, I don't like to think of myself as a materialist. So the idea that I would get closer to God by uh, taking a, um, a substance seems, seems uh, paradoxical at best. Yeah, yeah. No, I can I, I can see that. I mean, I, I think these these drugs or sacred plant medicines or whatever you want to call them, I mean, they're just unleashing an innate capacity that we already have. And people can get there through meditation, prayer, 
fasting, all kinds of spiritual practices. This is a real shortcut. And that's one of the criticisms that, that people, especially religious people, have. It's too easy, you know, to get a taste of that. Um, but, you know, a lot of the people that I've interviewed and, uh, 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 you know, over the years I talked to Houston Smith a lot about this. I wrote a, a book called The Harvard Psychedelic Club where Houston was one of the main characters, you know, and, and his, his famous line was, yes, uh, you can have uh, – these these substances can give you really and, and maybe an authentic spiritual experience, um, an altered state. But what's really important is altered traits of human behavior. Do they make you a more compassionate and aware person? Uh, that was a question that was very important to Houston and I think a lot of religious people. Um and, and, you know, I think a lot of people uh, in my generation, maybe still today, you know, younger people, they do get a, a little window into this world. And then maybe they look for kinder, gentler ways of altering their consciousness, you know, with meditation and other practices. Mm -hmm. uh, like personally, I mean, I write about this in the book. I joined a couple of these psychedelic churches, kind of like a almost like embedding myself as a journalist into the <laughs> fold. And I did this, you know, they knew I was writing about it. They knew I was a journalist um, as a sort of a participant observer. Um, but I said, and I was sincere about this, that I'm open to the possibility of perhaps joining this church, you know, as a, not just as a journalist, just as a human being. <laughs> but none of them really were for me, you know. And at the end of the book, I talk about this famous quote from Alan Watts, you know, the, the, Episcopal priest turned, uh, you know, beat hippie kind of spiritual commentator. Uh, uh, you know, his his line was, "Once you get the message, hang up the phone." Mm -hmm. you, you, you know that these are these are tools. These substances are tools, and then you find other ways to cultivate that awareness or that, uh, the, that mystical sense that you might experience. So I think they're valuable in that way. Now, I'm not, I'm not judging people who, you know, belong to a church where they drink ayahuasca every Saturday night. And there are lots of those churches, you know, um, that's fine. It's just not for me. Well, what you're pointing out, and we haven't been explicit about this yet with our viewers, is that there's a range of psychedelic churches. Some of them are very old, like the uh, American Indian Church uses uh, peyote as a sacrament, but there are the ayahuasca churches. There are now churches based on psilocybin and, and LSD. It, there, I'm going to guess there could be a hundred different denominations of that sort out there, and they have benefited from some recent legal changes. Yeah, you're right. So there's a Native American church, which actually isn't that old. It's like early 20th century in terms of organizing as a church. Yeah. Now, of course, there's a there's a tradition of sacred plant medicines among indigenous people. But I think that's kind of romanticized and exaggerated in by a lot of people today. It was there, but it's not like all Native Americans were into this. And then you have these Brazilian based ayahuasca churches, one of which started in the 1930s. You know, it's a new, what I would call a new religious movement, one of which started in the 60s. 
It's called Santa Daime or UDV. And they have established, they're like missionaries. They've established churches in the uh, sort of reverse missionaries. They're from the South coming up to the North to convert the, <laughs> the gringos, right? Uh, they've started ch uh, churches, uh, which have then split off. There's all kinds of schisms and debates and, you know, there are all kinds of arguments among, in, the, in the psychedelic religion world, just like there is in the, the broader religion, world of religion, right? Um, but yeah, there, there are, and then there are these new churches like Magic Mushroom churches. Uh, you know, there were churches that started in the 60s around LSD. Those are, some of those are still around or reforming. Um, I do do, I profile a, a church in Oakland, California called the Sacred Garden Church. They're really interesting because they actually, they were behind the effort to convince the Oakland City Council to decriminalize plant-based psychedelics. Um, and then they got that through the city council. That gave them kind of an opening to come above ground and, you know, publicly have this ministry called Sacred Garden Church. And they call themselves a postmodern church, by which they mean you can kind of believe anything you want about the nature of the, a religious experience or a psychedelic experience. You can think that maybe the, the entities that you see when you smoke DMT are real or not, you know, and the, the sort of the creed that they have, the only close sort of a creed, a pseudo creed is they basically you say, I believe that used with care and respect, uh, entheogens can open us up, have the possibility of opening us up to divine presence within this lifetime. Now I can sign on to that partly because it's po the word possibility. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but so in this church, you have people who believe all kinds of different things about the nature of the mystical experience they're having, but they're still coming together to explore that. Um, they also call themselves a church of least, uh, least dogma. <laughs> and they try to have as little dogma as possible. Yeah. But they're open to the use of uh, 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 this uh, uh, substance called chonga, which is a kind of like ayahuasca, but it's smoked. Mm -hmm. Basically, DMT is the active ingredient, or MD. Also, also not just plant-based MDMA or so-called ecstasy. They have a ceremony with that, and you know they're growing very rapidly. They have a branch up in Seattle starting. So they're a, a brand new thing that's sort of come out of the decriminalization uh, environment. Uh, and that stuff is happening all across the country. This is not just happening in, you know, Berkeley and Boston and Boulder. I mean, it's it's happening in Texas. I mean, there's a big church in Utah with a lot of ex-Mormons, uh, Florida, all over the country. This 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 is this is bubbling up. Well, if I recall correctly, there was a an act passed by Congress, the Religious Restoration Act, that help people who were formerly being penalized. There had been a previous Supreme Court ruling that you wrote about, uh, basically that the government's need to protect the population from the adverse effects of certain drugs trumped the rights of people to practice uh, their religious sacraments, and that has been changed. Yeah, yeah, that happened back in the 80s or 90s. I mean, that, that came out of uh, some controversy around the Native American church. Um, yeah, it's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And then there was another law passed with even more protections for Native Americans specifically. 
so there is a process by which uh, a church can apply to the uh, federal government, to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to get an exemption to the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which was Nixon, Richard Nixon's sort of war on drugs legislation, you know, which shut down a lot of the research into psychedelics and, and also just use. So there's a process by which people can do that. Most of these churches have not done that, though. That's kind of an interesting kind of wrinkle to this whole thing. A couple of the ayahuasca churches that are based in Brazil, which who have a better case in a way because they're part of a lineage and they really are part of a tradition. You know, there's a global organization. Um, some of those churches have got an exemption. So they can, you know, it's clearly legal under federal law. But the vast majority of these psychedelic churches have not done that. They argue that it's still legal, that they don't have to do that. It's, it's the government's, they don't have to prove to the government that they're a sincere religion. And so the only way this is ever really settled is if the government, say, seizes their sacrament, seizes their ayahuasca or their mushrooms, or arrests them, and then there's a, a case, a trial. Uh, and what seems to be happening, for the most part, uh, law enforcement is staying away from this. The, the cases where you know they have gotten involved was where there were some, maybe there's some people who have who died. There were some adverse effects, or some of these churches that are or retreat centers that are really advertising a lot. They're they're, they're making a lot of noise, you know. I think some of the smarter ones are still playing it kind of quiet and close to the vest. You know, they're public, but they're not, you know, advertising and they're not trying to draw too much attention to themselves because this still is, in my opinion, probably illegal under federal law. But, you know, so is marijuana, right? Oh. <laughs> I mean, marijuana is a state by state thing. And now abortion is going to be like that. So, you know, this is part of the fracturing of, you know, the country into these fiefdoms that we have. And the laws around psychedelics and drugs are the same. Well, I recall you wrote about uh, one retreat center that applied for religious status and was denied because the government said they're a business. They're trying to sell admission to their weekend seminars. And once you've come to the seminar, that's it. They don't care if you become a church member that has none of the other uh, accoutrements that accompany a religion. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true, and it, and you know you could argue that it's still uh, you know based on some religious belief, but at least according to the DEA, I'm, I'm not sure why the DEA is qualified to decide what a re religion is or not, but <laughs> that's another question. But one of the things they do look at is this a real community, right, of people who meet every week or, or once a month or whatever, right, and. Um, that particular church uh, in Florida, it was really was a retreat center where people would go for like a one-off experience with ayahuasca. You know, they might spend, you know, $1,000 to go off for a weekend to try ayahuasca. Um, and they were denied. They actually uh, tried to get an exemption and were denied. Um, but so, so a, a church like this church, Sacred Garden in Oakland, I mean, when you first joined this, and I went through this as a as an initiate, as a participant observer, you're required to go to like nine events, Sunday services where there are no psychedelics served, right? Mm -hmm. 
where they, you you learn about this. They they get to know you. You get to know them. Is this really right for you? And then you can uh, join the church at another level and have an initiation with with a, with a sacred plant medicine. But you know, it's not something you just go off for a, a you know a weekend and, and come home. And so I I think those to me that seems like really more of a sincere attempt to start a church. Uh, not that, I don't think there's anything wrong with a retreat center necessarily, people having that experience, but it's different. You know? mm-hmm. It's not really a religious community in that sense, in my, in, my, in my mind. Let's spend a little time talking about your own personal journey, Don. We, we did this, I know, in our previous interview where you talked about how you had struggled with alcohol and uh, had, had given up alcohol, but you were still... Uh, Willing, even though you're a teetotaler with regard to alcohol, I think, uh, you're still willing to uh, experience psychedelics and, and you think that that can be done in a safe way. Yeah. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was a newspaper reporter and <laughs> drinking was a big part of the culture, especially back in the old days. And, you know, I was a you know, heavy drinker for many years and, you know, but high, I, now I look back, I call myself a highly functioning alcoholic. You know, I never lost my job. I never got a DUI, but I was drinking way too much. And and I got into cocaine at a certain point. So it was really the combination of the cocaine and alcohol, which got to me. And I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. I kept doing it. That's always, often a bad sign, you know. And I so I went to, I went to a rehab center uh, and... Uh, you know, I had some slips in the beginning, but uh, I'm now about 17 years clean and sober. Haven't touched alcohol or cocaine. Um, but I don't know. Around 2014, when I started doing the reporting for Changing Our Minds, I decided that I needed to uh, experience, and I hadn't done any drugs. I mean, I hadn't done anything stronger than a double espresso. <laughs> you know, for at that point, eight years, right? Uh, no marijuana, no, no psychedelics, nothing. Um, and I decided that, you know, to write about uh, both the therapeutic and the spiritual use of psychedelics, I had to experience it. Um, so I very gingerly and cautiously kind of dipped my toe, you know, back into the, the use of psychedelics, but always within the context of a either a therapeutic session or a religious ceremony. Right. I'm not going to Burning Man. I'm not going to concerts. I'm not going to parties, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, while I was already sober, I wasn't using uh, psychedelics as a as a way to, you know, kick a habit. Like, but I did sort of get a deeper appreciation of kind of, sort of the nature of my addictive mind mm-hmm. through ayahuasca. And, you know, in in this book, uh, God on Psychedelics, the last chapter is about the so-called psychedelics and recovery movement. And these are people who think that psychedelics can be used to help people overcome an addiction, whether it's to heroin or alcohol or even like you know, sex or shopping or work or, or whatever your, uh, your addictive behavior is. Uh, and there's, a, of course, a tradition of this. I read about this in the book of Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous who got sober, you know, in the 30s before he ever tried LSD. But 20 years later, in the 1950s, Bill Wilson uh, started experimenting with, with, with LSD because he thought it could be used to help other alcoholics have the spiritual awakening they talk about in the 12 steps. He also 
help thought hoped it would help him with his uh, struggle with depression, Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson, and his addiction to tobacco, mm-hmm. which is the drug that killed Bill Wilson in the end, was his mm-hmm. addiction to cigarettes. Yeah, so there is a tradition even in Alcoholics Anonymous of an openness to using entheogens or psychedelics to prompt the spiritual awakening that they talk about in the 12 steps. And um, uh, I was involved with a group called Psychedelics in Recovery. And this is a a newly emerging 12-step fellowship where the members are open to the possibility of using psychedelics to help people get sober. Uh, Despite the fact that Bill Wilson was in favor of this back in the 1950s, Today in AA, you just do not talk about this. I mean, AA is really, for the most part, abstinence only. Um, uh, so there's very little openness to this idea within mainstream AA meetings. Um, but uh, partly in response to that, this new fellowship called, there's actually two different networks. Uh, one that I was involved with called Psychedelics in Recovery they are more 12-step focused. They've kept the structure of the 12 steps, but um, are, are open to you know the cautious and careful use of psychedelics for some people to help uh, overcome their addiction. And it's a safe place for people to come, even if they don't do it, to just talk about it, to talk about the possibility of this, right? Uh, which you couldn't really do in a normal AA meeting. It just wouldn't be appropriate, really. So this was a, uh, a group that I kind of helped get started, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago. I've kind of fallen away from it for various reasons, but, um, but they're, they're growing quickly, uh, especially during the whole COVID you know, shutdown. There was ne- there were like dozens of Zoom meetings now in the Psychedelics and Recovery Network. So it's been launched and it's, uh, they're out there trying to help people. I guess it would be fair to say that most of the mainstream religions, just like AA, are in favor of abstinence entirely. There are very few percentage-wise examples of mainstream religions uh, approving of psychedelic use. Yeah, um, and some are specifically opposed to it. Um, of course, you've got you know groups like say the Mormon Church, which is, which is against the use of all mind-altering substances, including tobacco, to, including uh, alcohol and coffee, right, or Coke, Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, and then you know, you've got a lot of evangelical churches that are very you know teetotaling churches. Of course, a lot of Christians like Catholics, Episcopalians, Methodists, uh, some Methodists, Presbyterians, their drinking is okay. Right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. We want so, uh, not that they're against all mind-altering substances, but yeah, they're. And, and part of that is you know, and but that's starting to change, you know. Uh, and and but it's they're they're certainly not rushing. The churches are. I'm not saying that churches are rushing to embrace this. I mean, I think I use the word an avant-garde of clergy for yeah. exploring this. But that's how that's how churches change. That's how they reform. And these these uh, these ministers will say, well, the church has to do something. I mean, there are projections that the within one or two generations, the Episcopal Church or the Lutheran Church, the mainline Lutheran Church, could basically go extinct. I mean, that's how serious the membership drop is. So um, 
but it's not like the, all these these clergy are saying that they're not necessarily interested in institutional uh, survival. They're interested in helping people, whatever the form is. Maybe maybe the old form of church is uh, maybe, maybe there are new ways to do that. You know, so they're not they're not just in this to like get people back in the pews. They're I, I think a lot of the a lot of the the avant garde clergy are really looking for new forms of community and new forms of communion. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, ten or twenty years down the down the road. What, what's happening with this in terms of the, the religious community. The title of your book, God on Psychedelics, Im- implies that at least for some people, psychedelics do provide some sort of an experience of the divine. And, and of course, that experience, according to the mystical literature, is ineffable. It's hard to describe at best. Still, I would think as a journalist, you're interested in determining for yourself if if there's anything at all to the idea that that psychedelics even for some people make them or help them to get really closer to god yeah you know there are a lot of ways to look at what happens on a on a high dose psychedelic trip i mean there's a psychological way of looking at this which would basically be ego dissolution right um, the normal, you know, I, me, me, mine, monkey mind, you know, the that seeing yourself as separate from everything. You know, that's how we, most people operate in the world. And of course, a mystical sense, a mystical experience, you often will have, uh, you know, people will call it a non-dual experience, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where there won't be this separation between you and everything around you. So you can have these incredible feelings of, of oneness, of some one wonderful expression is oceanic boundlessness, mm-hmm. uh, feeling like the small eye kind of diminishes, and this other eye, this bigger sort of eye, you, you connect to ultimate reality, cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Now you can see that in a religious way, or you can sort of understand it in a psychological way that you know um and i think we're talking before about addiction you know i think uh, a lot of addicts it's or people who are depressed it's like the the the, there's like um we're kind of stuck in this small pool of self right that 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 these drugs can help you break out of that and experience a a larger reality and you can call that god or not you know it, it but um it certainly does have a lot of the common characteristics of a mystical experience, like this sense of oneness, of unity, of awe, wonder, ineffability, paradox, um, feeling that things are more real than they've ever been. Like people use the word like suchness or isness of something. Uh, basically, your ego is kind of getting out of the way. That's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. And um you know, some of the work that they've been doing at Johns Hopkins, where they actually have surveys where they will try to rate people. Did you have a, quote, mystical experience? Right. And they will ask you about, did you have a sense of ineffability or paradox or a unit, unitive experience? Um, and, you know, they they claim to be able to measure mm-hmm. whether or not you've had a, 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 quote, mystical experience. And, and then they they take that data and they see. Compare it. Well, let's say you're there. You're in there to 
because of substance abuse or depression. Uh, and what they found in some of these studies is the stronger the mystical experience, the more the more successful they are in terms of overcoming whatever uh, mood disorder uh, they're addressing, whether it's PTSD or depression or substance use. So there's something about the mystical experience, whether you think it's God or not, that can help people overcome these ingrained patterns of thought and behavior. Uh, that can be pretty miraculous. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a, I was a religion reporter, you know, not a medical writer, but I, I think the way these things work, even in the therapeutic context, is it's really more of a conversion experience. It, it, it's a radical re-envisioning of yourself and how you relate to everything. And suddenly these problems, which seem so insurmountable, like I can't stop smoking, I can't stop drinking, I'm depressed, I've got PTSD, suddenly they're just not important. They just almost vanish in this, they can, right? They can just vanish. Um, to me, that sounds like a conversion experience. Let's look at it in a, in a larger sense for a, a moment. You and I are roughly part of the same generation. We came of age in the 60s and 70s uh, and, and, and so on. So we're part of a large-scale social movement that caught, certainly caught the attention of Richard Nixon uh, and, and has been part of the culture wars ever since. But the real question I think uh, that we need to ask is, has this movement evolved? Has it matured in a, in a positive way overall? Are we doing what Houston Smith had, had once recommended, which is not just to have a, a mystical experience, but to change traits, to, to develop new lifestyles? I, mean, I would say in, in my case, I think it's happened. I'm out here every day on uh, YouTube trying to inform people about cutting edge research and consciousness and taking psychedelics 50 years ago was, was a part of that journey that brought me to where I am today. But I'm not sure if, if I'm representative of my generation or if I'm an exception. That's a really good question. I, I, I think in terms of individual people's lives, I think the spiritual culture of the 60s had a, a huge and mostly positive effect. I mean, I think the way people look at, say, the environment, you know, the whole ecological movement, uh, the way we look at healthcare, the whole mind, body, spirit, you know, kind of consciousness around healthcare, the food we eat, the way we worship and approach the divine. I mean, all these things have radically changed for a lot of people. Maybe it's still in some ways a counterculture or a minority of people, but it's pretty mainstream, a lot of these things, you know, like yoga studios on every corner. Yeah. You know, mindfulness is like, you know, you can read about it in the supermarket checkout stand, right? I mean, it's like everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, uh, and some of this, not all of this can be attributed to the psychedelic revolution, you know, of the 60s and 70s. But, you know, I also think there was this naivete. You know, you remember, Jeff. I mean, we're going to change the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that yeah. whole hippie, that whole beautiful idealistic, you know, kind of mm -hmm. vision of the age of Aquarius and all that. And that didn't happen. You know, I mean, we had the 80s. And then we had the 90s, you know. Uh, so it, I don't know. And then you, one of the things that kind of bugs me in the so-called psychedelic renaissance is, you know, people are talking this way again. Know, psychedelics are going to save the world. Well, I don't know. I'm a, I'm I'm skeptical. Mm -hmm. uh, skeptical. I I think they can have a 
you know, I think they can foster cultural change in some ways, but I, I think it's it's much more complicated than that, you know. Yeah. And and I, I have a lot of uh, concerns. I, I'm disenchanted with a lot of what's going on in the psychedelic renaissance. You know, a lot of it is it's kind of a boutique experience for people who can afford to, even if it's an underground therapist, you know, you, people can spend thousands of dollars, you know, to have a psychedelic experience with a guide. Mm -hmm. And even some of these churches are, you know, requiring tithing and payments. And, and there's a commodification of psychedelics, which is really happening in like the pharmaceutical end of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, and this is a whole, this is another story. I don't really get into this in the book, but I mean, literally billions of dollars in venture capital have poured into this to try to develop new drugs, psychedelic based drugs. Mm -hmm. A lot of these companies, and it, that bubble has popped. A lot of these companies are in trouble now. A lot of them have shut down. It's kind of like what happened with the dot com, you know, the first dot com, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. All this venture capital, and no one really knew how they were going to, you know, really monetize this. So the, uh, you know, people are talking about the psychedelic industry now, and my, the hair on my you know back kind of <laughs> goes up when I hear that term, the psychedelic industry. Maybe uh, maybe I'm just stuck in the counterculture mindset or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't think psychedelics are going to save the world. Uh, I, I think, but on, I think on an individual basis, they can be very very beneficial for people. Th these are also can be dangerous. I mean, you can have a psychotic break, you know. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it's not dangerous in terms of addiction, like, say, opioids or alcohol or tobacco, which are maybe more dangerous in some ways. But, you know, psychologically, you know, we've all had, many of us have had bad trips. And, I, you know, I, I write about this in Harvard Psychedelic Club and another book, Distilled Spirits. You know, I had a very difficult time for a few months, you know, as a young man after a bad uh, acid trip. And it, uh, I was terrified. I thought I'd, you know, permanently damage my brain and you know, I was fine in the end. I think I came out saner than I went in, but, <laughs> but you know, it was scary for a while. And I think a lot of people have had those experiences. So um, I think I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to come across as a psychedelic sort of boosterism, right? I mm -hmm. really don't. Um, sometimes when I start talking about it, I get excited and kind of start sounding that way, but. I always want to take a step back and okay, let's. Well, fundamentally, you're a journalist, and and you're you're. Re I'm a skeptic. Okay. I see. I, th I see myself as a skeptical universalist. That's what I started calling mm -hmm. myself. You know, by that I mean that by universe, I, I think there are there there are there, there's truth and there's goodness in all the world's religions, especially maybe the mystical sides of all the world's religions. And there's also a lot of you know grandiosity and corruption and exploitation. You know that all those things are present. Um, you know, and so as a journalist, you know, I try to sort of go in with eyes wide open, you know, whether I'm writing about the psychedelic churches or the Catholic church. Well, I guess one thing we can say for sure, being able to look back now over half a century is that psychedelics didn't go away and they're not about to. They are, they are not, no. And that's the real difference. They, they, you know, it was a transgressive thing. It was illegal. People were going to jail. People are still going to jail, um, you know, and now you've got, you know, university medical centers and uh, research institutions and politicians endorsing this. Laws are changed. You know, it's really it's it, it's not counterculture anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really mainstreaming. It's just the beginning, but it's mainstreaming. 
Well, Don Latin, once again, this has been a fascinating conversation. You really do have your finger on the pulse of uh, what's happening in our culture with regard to psychedelics and uh, it's. I can see it's a mixed picture. It's not 100% uh, good. It's not as beautiful as I once thought it would be. But uh, it's certainly uh, a far cry from uh, the sorts of uh, fear-mongering that took place during the Nixon years. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, it was great, it was great uh, sharing this time with you, Jeff. I always enjoy speaking with you. Yeah, I'm very happy to speak with you anytime uh, you've got something to say, Don. It's a fascinating conversation, and you'll be welcome back over and over again on New Thinking Aloud. So much. You're, you're very welcome. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.